Pathways to Scale. When I was a child, a big feature of the social landscape was the annual visit to my uncle's house on Christmas Eve. My dad came from a big family and they'd all gather at his brother's place to celebrate. My kid brother would already be asleep, but I would sit in the small room next to the place where they were all gathered, drinking, talking and so on, occasionally singing. It was warm there, a small electric fire in the grate and a blanket to wrap myself in if I felt the cold, which was just as well since I invariably spent the evening with my nose in a book. Not just any book. As soon as we arrived, I'd make a beeline for the bookshelf and haul out John Hunt's account of the ascent of Everest. And I'd spend the evening while the ice crawled up the windows outside the room, hearing the wind howling against the flimsy side of my tent as we shivered over a primer stove, trying to warm ourselves and get some rest before tomorrow's big day those last painful yards towards the summit. I was fascinated by the scale of the thing, a huge expedition involving over 400 people, 362 of them porters, helping to carry the 5,000 plus kilograms of equipment up that mountain and relying on the intimate knowledge of the mother mountain, which was held by the 20 Sherpas in the team. Now, those Nepalese guides had grown up in the shadow of the peak and knew to fear and respect it. And then there were the months of planning in smoky rooms in London clubs, and then the assembly and trek towards the base camp and the allocation of roles to help lay the foundations for what would certainly not be a simple walk in the park. The extended discussions around which paths to take, the weighing up of different challenges along the prospective routes, obstacles reckoned into the equation and balanced with the specialist skills and equipment needed to tackle them. A whole new language of cols and crevasses, of pythons and crampons to be learned, and a crash course in high altitude physiology and technology to be mastered. And that was all before they even took their first tentative steps up the slopes. It was engrossing, exciting and scary for an eight-year-old kid whose experience of mountaineering extended to scrambling over the South Downs during our annual trip to see Grandma, this was heady stuff. And as the evening wore on and we approached the summit, so it became a race against time. For the climbers, Whittled down now to Hillary and Tensing, struggling up that last stage, their oxygen and energy running low and storms looming. And for me, hearing the chatter from next door rise to the climax, which portended the taking of farewells, the wrapping of my kid brother in a blanket to continue his pre-Santa sleep in the car, and me being bundled into a coat. Would I get to the summit in time? or have to wait until next year to continue the journey, abandoning mine at the 11th hour. I took a couple of lessons from that book. The first being that I'm not cut out for mountain climbing. There have to be easier and still thrilling ways to get your kicks. And because it is there, isn't a good enough reason for me to devote my energies to that particular kind of madness. 
But the other was a healthy respect for people who scale mountains successfully. It takes a lot of planning, great teamwork, and an approach to uncertainty, which is all about agility and pivoting, adapting and improvising your way upwards. Pretty much the key ingredients for successful innovation, and certainly relevant to another kind of scaling journey, enabling great innovations to have impact. Because taking an innovation from a small-sized success story to something which delivers value at scale isn't an easy one. That holy grail of impact has a lot to do with the elusive quest pursued by King Arthur's knights, which took them along strange paths, meeting with dragons and disasters, and lasting a long time. Similar odds of success, too. Having spent a long time focused on the challenges facing startups, the innovation spotlight is now moving to the question of scaling. And there's helpfully a growing body of knowledge and codified experience around this theme, including the important decision about which route to take for your journey to scale. Because one thing about mountain climbing, which I remember thinking about when reading my Everest book, was how they chose which route to take. Faced with 29,000 feet of sheer white walls with the occasional dangerous looking black rock poking its jagged edge through the snow like a knife through a curtain, how do you decide which path to take? It's not as if there are well-worn tracks and clear signposts which you can follow. All you have is a lot of very unfriendly and treacherous ground on which to try and make your way. It's the same with scaling your innovation. Choosing your preferred pathway to scale is a key first stage on the journey. Fortunately, like today's Everest climbers, there's a wealth of experience available from previous attempts and some important lessons on which we can build. In particular, we need to see the choices available as lying on a spectrum where we trade off additional external involvement with giving up a degree of control over what we're doing. It's a strategic decision, trying to balance the resource commitments you'll need to make with the amount of control you want to retain. And with deciding what parts of your innovation knowledge are core, what parts are modular, can be adapted and customised with others in mind, and what parts are you prepared to let others engage with, hacking their own version of your ideas. Scale stories give us valuable clues about possible options, which also include not doing it. After all, some innovations aren't really about a scaling journey. They work for a particular problem in a particular context. What's needed for impact there over the long term is sustainability, being able to continue to deliver over an extended period of time and becoming something which is used and relied upon. But if you are going to aim for scale, then your choices include things like parachute, that's to say, develop the venture and then try to get acquired, jump off and let someone else carry it. A classic startup exit strategy. Let someone with the experience and resources buy your solution and let go. That's easy on paper, but you give up all your control and you can only watch from the sidelines as your venture developed and hope that it's in safe hands. 
Of course, you could also go it alone. Keep on adding staff, spreading your solution across different geographies, gradually paint the world, or your chosen part of it, in your colours. Now, there are plenty of advantages to doing this. Mostly, you keep control. You can directly manage quality, message, brand, and so on. The downside is you'll need a lot of people and a lot of resources, and you'll pretty soon reach the point where you need to rethink your structure. That old tight-knit startup team has to give way to a structured organisation, complete with policies, procedures, and the necessary slowing down of the decision-making process. Plus, you'll need to adapt your solution to different local conditions, essentially making it compatible with them. And cost management is going to be important, finding ways to grow without bloating. And in reality, this organic growth kind of approach can't be a solo act. There'll be things like you need to outsource, like legal services, manufacturing, distribution or maintenance. And it's going to take time to build your own networks to do so. Now, another option is to replicate. Maybe your solution idea is one you think will work simply by replicating, placing the same offer in different geographies with minor tweaks to help it fit. Now, if your solution is something which can be packaged up in this fashion and exported, a sort of plug-and-play option, then it can work. It can either be a grow-your-own approach, repeating the pattern by putting down your footprints on an increasingly broad geography. That's the kind of route followed by IKEA and many other retailers embodying their innovation solution in something which can be replicated around the world. Or you can franchise, allow others to take on the task, replicate on your behalf, sharing the revenues, building on your original innovative efforts. That's the route which McDonald's has followed, exporting its original innovative fast food format to over 39,000 locations around the world. But as Ray Kroc, their scale architect, realised, there's a critical need to make sure the rules are clearly codified and then control via the franchise agreement so your proxies don't damage the brand, compromise quality or change the core product. It's a kind of remote control based on a clear constitution. Relay replication is another version which involves another organisation adopting and using your solution, like handing on the baton in a race. And like franchising, it requires protocols, training, standardising of core elements and processes, but it also allows the adopting unit to continue to adapt and innovate within agreed parameters. Now, a classic model here might be the diffusion of chemical plants, like oil refineries. The core technology is transferred and the user learns to operate it. It needs more than simply delivering. This is not a plug and play solution. It involves a shared, extended handover process until the user can make a product in a bottle with its own staff operating the equipment. Now, the advantages here for you are that you learn every time as you coach different organisations in the use of your innovation. Plus, there's the chance that their downstream learning feeds back to you and allows you to improve your innovation. But it takes time and resources to ensure that successful handover and making sure key knowledge is shared through training, through manuals, protocols and a long-term commitment to support. 
Licensing is another variation on this replication theme where other players take on and depending on the terms of the license, do things ranging from simply selling the core package through to adapting and extending it to suit local conditions. The big advantage here is that other players are putting their shoulder to the wheel, helping spread the innovation load. Plus, there's a direct financial return to the original innovator. But once again, licensing involves letting go of control. Now, of course, one other option is to open it all up, the kind of open source, open licensing approach. A lot of commercial innovation is about finding ways to appropriate benefits. So there's a pressure to keep a tight rein on what is shared and how. But if you want to spread something, especially a novel approach, you might want to open up much more so that you can accelerate diffusion and seek your returns by being the first mover growing with the market. There's plenty of examples. Philips, for example, wanted to change the way we consumed recorded music in 1993 when they launched the compact cassette. So what they did was license it for free to other players like Sony and Matsushita. It makes sense. If you're trying to establish a new dominant design and move the world away from the current incumbent, then recruiting others via open licensing is a good road to take. And of course, in the world of social innovation, this has particular relevance. Innovators who want to change the world for better face the same challenge and recruiting others to the cause, opening up, offers one way of doing so. There are several advantages to taking such an open approach. Not least, it recruits many innovators who can help improve on your ideas. Communities of practice and using the crowd have become powerful innovation engines through this approach of free sharing. Linux is the classic example. Lego's approach to the hackers who started to modify the original Mindstorms product was interesting. Those hackers were presented with a different option to the traditional lawsuit. They were invited to Denmark to add their innovative ideas to those of the core design team. The downside, of course, in such open approaches is once again that loss of control and the risk that the innovation might be hijacked or developed in directions which don't match those of the original authors or reflect their social values. Another option is strategic partnerships, and these make sense when there's a clear need for complementary assets of knowledge or other key resources and where win-win arrangements and contracts can be put in place. Christopher Scholes and his colleagues had developed a great solution to the typewriter opportunity back in the 1850s, but it took their strategic partnership with Remington, who bought their accompanying mass manufacturing and marketing skills, to help them scale their innovation. A multiplayer consortium might be needed when that range of complementary assets goes beyond a simple, single partner. Think about Sears and Roebuck who, amongst others, pioneered the remote retailing model with their mail-order catalogue a hundred years before Amazon and Jeff Bezos. But what they needed to do was to bring together many other players into the model to make it work. Finance houses, logistics and distribution, a wide range of different suppliers. Boeing and Airbus do the same today, orchestrating extensive networks of players and partners to deliver their aerospace solution innovations at scale. 
Now, such consortia bring real power to the scaling challenge, but they also require careful integration around the core mission. Managing such strategic networks is well known for its high transaction costs and these coordination challenges. Which brings us to the idea of value networks and ecosystems. Today's innovation language extends this multiplayer game idea, recognising there's a need for many players to work together to create value at scale. But the challenge is that not all of these players have the same goals or aspirations, so balancing their needs with the overall mission becomes a tricky tightrope to walk. It's also important to recognise that such ecosystems don't just have shared value creators in the mix, like our strategic partnerships. They might also have other players who are involved and who can affect that journey to scale by shaping the ways in which the value creation game is played out. Examples of such shapers include government regulators or trade unions or standards organisations. Once again, this has particular relevance for scaling social innovation, where system change which delivers real impact will depend on finding ways to bring many diverse players, like government agencies or regional authorities, on side. Such collaborations very often will require different actors to coalesce around a shared set of priorities. And we now are in the world of platform thinking. We're seeing the rise of platform businesses which enable scaling through linking innovators and markets more effectively. For example, the Taobao market approach, which was pioneered in China, that mimics the many ways ecosystems around Apple's development platform or much of the Amazon operation actually work. For small startup innovators, such platforms become a powerful alternative route to scale but at the cost not only of accessing the platform, but once again, letting go of some degree of control. So we have a spectrum of choice available in terms of picking our preferred route to scale. Now for any innovator, climbing mount scale remains a key challenge. Meandering around the foothills may be a pleasant way to pass the time, but if you want your innovation to have real impact, then that peak has got to be climbed which means putting together and planning your expedition with the kind of care and attention that John Hunt brought to his Everest team. And my guess is that his reflections probably still have relevance today in the world of innovation. Working out the most appropriate route up those slopes is something best done in the comfort of base camp. Rather than halfway up the mountain with the wind howling, the snow lashing at your face, as you realise that the other path might have been a better one to take.